0: Our scripture reading today is from Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. If you're using a pew Bible, you can turn to page 807. There's actually no page 807, but if you turn to page 808 and turn back a page, you'll find it. Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus.
1: Well, during these weeks in December, we have been doing a mini-series. We've been addressing two big questions, and the first one is, what is Christmas all about? And the second one is, what does that mean for us? What is Christmas all about? And then what does that mean for us, you and me, in the world we live in? We don't live 2,000 years ago. We live in 2023, going on 2024. And this event seemed like such a long time ago. Does Christmas have anything uh, to do with uh, us? And the way that you answer these questions can tell a great deal or show a great deal about what you believe about the world we live in. In fact, The way you answer these questions, what is Christmas all about and what does it have to do with me personally, really shows what you believe about what it means to be a Christian and what it means to live as a Christian. Uh, The astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, he's kind of a popular guy, he's really good about popularizing difficult technical ideas, said that the question that people ask him most often When they find out that he is an astrophysicist, someone that studies the stars and other things I can't explain. The the thing that people ask him most often is, are we alone? He said, it's understandable. You know, you look up at the sky and you see all these stars and you wonder, is there anything else out there? You know, they tell us that the sun is 93 million miles away compared to... The earth compared to the sun that makes the earth just look like a little tiny dot. And yet in our galaxy, I don't know how they come up with these numbers, but in our galaxy they they say that there are a hundred billion suns. Many much, much larger than our own. And how many galaxies are there? Well, the the number keeps on changing. It keeps keeps on getting larger and larger. But at present, as far as I know, some might come up with a more updated number. They say that there's something like 2 trillion galaxies. I mean, could it really be that we here on this little earth uh, spinning in this inky emptiness are the only the only intelligent life? And I think there's a profound connection between the question, are we alone on this planet, and am I alone? Are you alone in your grief, in your hopes, in your fears? When the uh, NASA space probe, the Voyager, in 1990 went past the furthest planet, it turned around to take a picture of the Earth in what became Earth's first selfie, before selfies were kind of a thing. But that photograph of Earth showed Earth just beyond the rings of Neptune as this little, tiny, barely visible dot. And the view of that um, is what inspired Carl Sagan, the title of his book, Pale Blue Dot. You wrote a book uh, called Pale Blue Dot. And in this book, he writes, Our imagined self-importance is challenged by this pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Now, Carl Sagan was right about a lot of things, including the implication that we need to be saved from ourselves. There's something that we are deeply amiss about human beings. But on this particular point, that there is no hint that help will come from the outside to save ourselves, on this point, the Christmas story utterly contradicts him. Because the story of Christmas says that we are not alone. The story of Christmas tells us that our planet is the visited planet, that God has come to us. In the words of John, uh, in, in the gospel of John, the word, that is God, became flesh and dwelt among us. That is God himself has become a human being. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Now, that's a really, really big concept. And because that's such a big concept that God would become a human being, we can have a handle for it And the handle for it, that big concept, is a word, and some of you may know this word, it's the word incarnation. In plus carne. You're thinking, what, you mean like carne asada, like that kind of carne? Yes. Yes, meat, flesh, skin, muscle, bones, brain, body tissue. God became, that is the meaning of the word incarnation. And that is that that God himself became subject to the kinds of things that your bodies are subject to. Cuts and burns and fatigue and injury and exhaustion and death. And the story of Christmas is that God became a human being. It's the story of the incarnation. And that is at the very heart of Christianity. And, And this is also what makes... Christianity so utterly stunning and actually so scandalous. It's something that makes it so hard for people to believe that God would actually take on human flesh. The incarnation is something that people stumble over. But Matthew, here in the, the text that you just heard read, tells us how that happened. How the incarnation happened. And so, what I want to do this morning is to, I want to, us, us to unfold the teaching of this text in three parts. And, and we're going to see three things. There are three things for us to learn about the Incarnation. We're going to see that the Incarnation was an event. The Incarnation has a purpose, and the Incarnation has an outcome. We're going to look at the Incarnation as an event in history, the purpose of the Incarnation, and the outcome of the Incarnation. So let's look at it in that order. First of all, we're going to look at the, the fact as Matthew states it here, that the incarnation is an event. It really happened. So look at verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place. I'm going to pause right there, right? Very clearly, Matthew is saying this. The incarnation, that is God taking on human flesh, God becoming a human being, it actually happened. It is an event in human history. That means that the incarnation, God becoming flesh, Belongs on the timeline of history, just like the discovery of iron, the founding of the city of Rome, Caesar's crossing of the Rubicon, the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution, the American Revolutionary War, your previous birthday. I mean, all these events stand along a timeline of events. And the claim of the Bible, the claim of the incarnation, the story of Christmas, is that God. Coming to the earth belongs on the time alone of events too, as an event in history. Now, if you've been in, in church for a long time, that may just come be like, well, duh, we've, we've learned about that. That's no big deal. But I really want us to think about this carefully because a lot of people that think about this carefully really have a hard time with this. Because they think, wait, wait just a second. This idea about God coming to the earth, a virgin birth, this seems to belong in the category of religious myths. And there are a lot of religious myths that bear some similarities to the story of Jesus dying, uh, Jesus being born and living and then dying and rising again. And so doesn't this belong in the category of myth, not as human history, but maybe kind of like above human history, kind of like, and there's a number of myths. For example, uh, the myth of the Egyptian god Osiris. So here's a god who was killed and then came back to life. Or, uh, for example, um, there's, a, there's a Norse god named Baldr. You haven't heard of him because Marvel hasn't made a movie about him yet. But he's actually the brother of Loki and Thor. He just, I, I hadn't heard of him before I began studying for this message either. But, uh, but maybe they will eventually make about 300 movies about Balder as well. And anyway, th- but there, here's a god that he was a very good, upright god. Everybody loved and respected him. And he was killed by his brother. Uh, the, the myth of the uh, phoenix... This bird that explodes into a show of flames and then is reduced to ashes and then out of the ashes comes back again. I mean, we have these stories of death and and resurrection and the gods coming and living and dying. And people say, doesn't the the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus belong on the plane of myths? Because after all, don't these stories, uh, don't they give us some kind of meaning in life? Don't they give us some sort of hope for an afterlife? Don't they speak to some craving for immortality or help us know how to live? But the story of the incarnation is saying this, this is not merely a religious myth as of something that never happened. No one wonders, for example, who was the emperor when the phoenix exploded into flames and then, and then came back out of the ashes? Or which of the Norse kings was on the throne when Balder was killed? Or which of the uh, pharaohs was uh, ruling when Osiris died and rose again? Nobody asks those quite a question. It's why it's ridiculous. These things don't belong on the plane of human t- uh, timeline. These things uh, belong in the heavenly realm, so to speak ah, but with the incarnation, it's totally different. When when the scripture writers speak of the birth of Jesus Christ, they say things like this. It was when Herod was king of Judea. It was when Caesar Augustus made a decree that all the world should be taxed. Why are they saying these things? So that we could map the coming of God onto the human timeline. That is, God really did visit this planet. This is not just Mythology. This is not just fables. This is not just a way, a philosophy or an approach to life. This is historical. This is a historical event and that matters. And because it is a historical event, it means it happened in a certain way. So the birth of Jesus Christ took place, I pause right there, in this way. And how does Matthew describe it happening? Well, he says that Jesus was born to a virgin woman. And now this is another area that people kind of scratch their heads and think, okay, now this is the cringy part of Christianity. Can't we have an essential Christianity and take out all the cringy miracles? The miracles are essential to the Christian faith, not extraneous to the Christian faith. God enters into human history, and He does it in a particular way. And beyond that, we can answer the question, well, are there reasons why God chose to, make, to, to come into the world being born to a virgin? Well, if you noticed... When we started reading in Matthew chapter 1, we didn't start reading at the beginning of the book, right? Right. There is a whole section preceding this, and the section preceding it is a genealogy. That's a list of names. Uh, So-and-so became the father of this person, became the father of this person, and and this is a big, long list of genealogies. What is that showing us? It's showing us that Jesus was born into the world at a particular time, and Joseph, who was the betrothed, uh, like a fiancé especially, a lot more... Uh, a, a larger commitment than what we typically associate with an engagement or being a, being a fiancé, Joseph. This is Joseph's genealogy. But in Joseph's genealogy, in verse 12, there's this character named Jeconiah. Now, if, if you knew your Old Testament, like the people that would have read the book of Matthew originally would have known the Old Testament, you'd have known that this particular king was a wicked king, so wicked, in fact, that God cursed him and the curse that god put upon him said that none it, it said that none of his descendants would be able to sit on the throne any longer this is from jeremiah 22:30 record this man as if childless a man who will not prosper in his lifetime for none of his offspring will prosper none will sit on the throne of david or rule anymore in judah but the promised messiah had to sit on the throne of david You see, there's a very good reason why God made it so that Jesus is the biological son of Mary, but not of Joseph. Because if he was the biological son of Joseph, then he would have inherited the curse of Jeconiah and thus not be fit fit to sit on the throne. You see, the, the marvel of God's intervening into human affairs so that he can keep his promises to his people that there would be a forever king, and Jesus is that forever king. So, this was an event that really happened. Now, there may be something else that lurks in our minds. And by the way, if, if you don't, if these objections don't come to your minds, if these questions don't come to your minds, maybe it would be helpful for you to think about them. But for some of you, they might. And some people might be thinking this, doesn't this sound too suspiciously good to be true? Doesn't it seem a little bit too good to be true that all our longings for hope for an afterlife, for immortality, for meaning in this life, for pardon of sins. Doesn't doesn't it seem too good to be true that all this is happening and it's happening miraculously? And a lot of people ask that question too. And to that I respond and say, but is that a reason not to believe it? Is it a reason not to believe something just because it's too good to be true? If, for example, you felt yourself to be very hungry and your stomach felt empty and you felt trembly and and craving something and then someone began to describe to you that there was such a thing as ham and mashed potatoes and gravy and and, and they started describing to this to you and as you thought about this you begin to think but this is exactly what I've been craving for and then they told you there's something it, it really exists and it's in the next room wouldn't you at least check it out wouldn't you at least go in there and see is this is this true I mean, or would you say, no, no, that, that seems too good to be true. It seems too perfectly to fit my longings. You see, the Bible, the Bible presents the, the, the message of, of Christianity, the gospel, the good news. It says, it is true that you, that you hunger for something beyond this life. It's true, your, your, long, your longings, your, your sense of emptiness, that's because God was meant to fulfill it. And the incarnation says that God's coming to the earth is is a historical event. Now, there's a couple points that I want to draw out by way of application uh, on this this first point. That is, the the incarnation really happened. It's a true event. This tells us, first of all, this tells us something about Christianity, the very heart of Christianity. It tells us because the, the incarnation really happened, that is, God really became a human being, really entered human history, It tells us something about the very heart of the Christian message. And that is, it's not just a philosophy or an approach to life. It's not just a list of rules to live by. At the heart of Christianity is not a way for us to get to God. At the heart of Christianity is this message that God has come to us. That is the good news. That is the gospel. That's why the incarnation that we sing about is such a joyful thing. Not that we have finally found an approach to life that works or a set of rules rigorous enough for us to climb the ladder to heaven, but it is this, God has come to us. We are not alone. Our planet is the visited planet. God comes to us. That's the very heart of Christianity. Here's a second point of application about the incarnation, that it's a real event. It belongs in the timeline of of history, and that is this world matters. This world matters. You know, if God cared enough about this world to come to this world, don't you think that this world matters? I'm talking about this physical universe. I'm talking about our globe. I'm talking about our planet. This world matters. See, a lot of people seem to have this idea that, the, that, that this world doesn't matter. And that we should just kind of trash the world or live live as if these things are just gonna all burn up and go away. But you know what? God's God's original plan for this this world, even after it was broken, was not just to crumple up and throw it away and discard it, but rather to remake it, to fix what was broken. Not to just blow it up and start all over again, which he could have done. But instead, God wants to repair what was broken. That's why when Jesus came to this earth, he, he, he didn't say, now I'm going to elevate everybody up to heaven. No, he says, the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's why he, te- he teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the, the, the problem facing human beings is that heaven and earth were intended to overlap like this. They were intended, human beings were intended to dwell with God, but instead we have wrenched our, ourselves apart from God. God will reunite heaven and earth. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells, and God will once again dwell with human beings. That's our hope. This world matters. And, so, and third, as an application of the fact that the incarnation is a real event, third, you matter. You matter. How do you know You matter. How do you know you have value? No one has ever discovered human value in a test tube. They haven't found human dignity on, uh, they haven't found the element human dignity. How do you know you matter? How do you know there's any worth to your life? There's nothing that says you matter like the fact that God came to this earth to seek and to save that which was lost. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amy, uh, Mary Ann Bird, sorry, Mary Ann Bird tells a story about herself when she was a little girl. She was born without, um, she had a cleft palate, so she had this gap between the, top of her mouth and her nose. She, had a, she said she had a crooked nose, she had bowed feet, she had crooked teeth, and she was just very insecure, felt very self-conscious about the way she looked. Kids would ask her what happened to her lip, and she had said that when she was a baby she fell on a piece of glass and got cut, but that wasn't really what happened. She, she just felt so embarrassed by her appearance. And at school every once in a while the teachers would uh, have a hearing screening test where um, one of the teachers would uh, whisper uh, a, a word or a phrase to, to one of the students and have them cover one ear at a time. They'd cover a ear, uh, their uh, ear and then the teacher would whisper from over here to see if they could hear what they were saying and the student would re- repeat the phrase back to them and sometimes they'd say something like the sky is blue or uh, are those new shoes or whatever? And the, and the student had to repeat the phrase. But in addition to having some facial disfiguration, um, uh, Mary Ann Bird also had, was hard of hearing. One, in one of her ears, she could hardly hear anything out of one of her ears. And so during these hearing screening tests, she would, instead of covering her good ear, she would uncover it a little bit so she could hear what the, what the teacher was saying because she was embarrassed about not being able to hear very well. Until she was in second grade, she said when she was in second grade, her teacher then was a teacher that all the students liked. She was kind and pretty. She always smelled good. And when it t- came time for the hearing test, uh, the teacher invited her to come and, and she was going to whisper a phrase so that she could hear. And uh, Ann said that she would often, she would often take the, her hand off her ear just a little bit so she could hear. And she said the words that that teacher whispered to her were words that changed her life. Instead of saying something like, the sky is blue, or looks like you have new shoes, she said, I wish you were my little girl. The incarnation is God's way of saying, I want you to be my child. You matter. John writes in the first chapter of his gospel that as many as received him, that is, as many as received the Son of God, to those gave he the authority to be called the sons of God, the children of God. I mean, what says you matter? Where are you going to find human worth? It's not the, it's not the result of a mathematical equation. It's not the conclusion of a logical, deductive argument. It, you can't find it in a test tube. What you can find is that you, what you can find it in is the incarnation. God came to this world. He says you matter, and I want you to be my child. You see, when Jesus walked on this earth, he perfectly embodied that kind of valuing of human, human individuals. He spoke with people. He spent an afternoon with a serial adulteress. And he spent an evening with a religious man. He welcomed children into his circle and to sit on his lap and to put his hands on them just as much as he loved a rich young ruler. Jesus' enemies, when they came up to him, they they had to admit, they said, "You you are not a respecter of persons. Now, the word respect or persons that they use there, the Greek word is you do not receive people's faces. In other words, you don't judge people merely on the way they look, but you you value people because they're people. The incarnation teaches us that you matter. Can I just I want to speak to directly to some of you this morning that you may feel like you don't matter. You may feel like you don't have value. You may be telling yourself that you don't have value. Maybe someone else has told you that you don't have value. Listen to the words of the Bible. Listen to the meaning of the incarnation. God so loved the world. God came for you. The incarnation tells you that you matter, that you have value. Second, the incarnation has a purpose. The incarnation has a purpose. It happened. It was a historical event. It happened in a certain way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, I'm reading in verse 19 of chapter 1, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why Jesus? Because Jesus means the Lord saves, for he will save his people from their sins. This is the purpose of the incarnation. God became a human being in order to save people from their sins. That's the purpose of the incarnation. Now, a little earlier, just a few moments ago, I said, you matter. You, what you do matter, who you are matters. But that, there's a flip side of that too, because if you matter so much, then what you do matters a lot too. That's what makes sin so tragic. Sin is tragic not because you are worthless, but because you do have value. I remember several years ago, uh, this was before the pandemic, when Zoom was a thing, but not as much of a thing as it is now. And I was uh, listening to a lecture um, by, by, by a professor, and there were students all over the world. It uh, wasn't a whole lot of students, maybe about 20 or so, but they're all over the world watching this this Greek le- this lecture on the, the Greek language. And as I, I was on my phone, and I was watching the lecture on my phone, I tapped on my screen, and I noticed when I tapped on my screen, a little red dot appeared right there. And I, I swiped on my screen, and the red dot turned into a line. I realized, oh, I was scribbling on my, my screen. I was like, oh, I didn't know I could do that. And so I started doodling there on my this the screen of my phone and as i started to do that suddenly the professor stopped teaching and he said well what's that well i don't know i don't know what and i noticed the students started laughing and what i began to realize is that everybody could see the doodling (laughs) on the screen you know i wanted to matter in the class but i didn't want to matter that much (laughs) I, i wanted to have some significance but i didn't realize that what i did was so significant We want to matter as human beings, but we often underestimate that it matters what we do too. And that is our sin is really, really a big deal. It's a much bigger deal than doodling on a screen. And in fact, sin is much more than what many people realize it to be. Uh, A lot of people, and this is very common among people that are religious and people that are non-religious, and most people, I think both religious and non-religious, think of sin in terms of breaking certain rules. And sin, and sin indeed can be breaking certain rules. But there is a way to sin not by breaking certain rules, but by keeping certain rules. Because the essence of sin is not breaking rules. The essence of sin is an orientation of your heart that turns away from God. That's what sin is. And you can actually turn away from God by, by keeping all the rules. Keeping all the rules or, or, or keep doing all these things that make you feel like a moral and pious person can be your way of avoiding God. And so that's why when Jesus walked upon this earth, he, he reserved his fiercest language for people who kept all the rules because they didn't think they were sinners. You see, Jesus became, God became a human being. He took on flesh to save people from that fundamental orientation that bent of our heart that turns away from God that produces all kinds of things to save his people from their sins and by saying to save his people from their sins Matthew is pointing to the climax of Jesus life and that is when Jesus died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins This is something that that nobody in the time of Jesus really understood was going to happen, but it did. And that is that the way that God saves people from their sins is by taking their sins upon himself and bearing the penalty that that sin deserves. When, When Jesus came to this earth, he lived a perfect life. In other words, he walked in a perfect relationship with God as his father and as such, deserved a perfect reward. And yet, at the end of his life, what he got is the very thing that, he, that, he, that a sinner should have gotten. Someone who would have broken all the rules. That is, he got death. Why did a life that deserved reward get death? Because Jesus was dying for our sins. That's why. That's the meaning of the phrase that we find all throughout the New Testament, Jesus died for our sins. Now, this is very hard for people to accept and understand because we don't want to think that we have sins. We don't want to think that we're sinners. We have ways of drawing lines politically and religiously and socially all around different people. And and, and however we draw these lines, for some reason, we always end up as the good guy. For some reason, we always end up on the right side of the line. That's how we tend to draw lines. But the line dividing good and evil, it crosses through every person's heart. We are the ones that need the salvation. And the only thing standing between us, the only thing standing between us and God, the only thing standing between you and God is your sin. And that's the purpose of the incarnation. Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins. But that also means that there is a good outcome to the incarnation. That's their third point. The our, the incarnation has an outcome. And we see this in the fulfillment of the prophecy that's recorded there in verse 22 and 23. This was spoken to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, it's it's hard for me to to bundle up and give to you the full explosive impact of this little phrase, God with us. But I'm going to try to do it this way. It is the engine that drives the the, uh, the narrative of the Bible from the very beginning to the end. It is, that what God, it is what God wanted from human beings from the very beginning to dwell with them, to share his love with them, to walk with them in the Garden of Eden, to be with them, to, to make that heaven and earth would be one to make human beings his dwelling place. That's what God wanted from the very beginning. That's why he created human beings. But human beings drew themselves away. We, you and I, have pulled away from God. And now God is, is, has a plan to one day dwell with human beings again. The closing chapters of the book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, talk about the new heavens and the new earth where God says, Behold, I am making all things new, and the dwelling place of God will be with men, will be with humans again. And so this phrase, God with us, is this this leap of hope in our hearts, a a trumpet uh, announcing the coming of, of the fulfillment of all God's promises. God can be with us again. I won't be lonely, we won't be lonely, we won't be by ourselves, we won't be marooned and cut off from, from hope and, and joy. God with us, this is the promise that God gives. And this is the meaning of the name Emmanuel, God with us. This is the outcome of the incarnation. The fact that God came as a human being is a guarantee that we will never be left alone if we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior because God is with us. I would like to think of this as... The withness of God. I don't try to say that too often because it sounds like I have a speech impediment if I say that. But the withness of God, not the witness of God, the withness of God. God is with us. And this, this phrase also points to the very end of Matthew's gospel when the resurrected Christ has gathered his followers around him. And he says, all authority has been given me in heaven and on earth, and I want you to go and tell everybody, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and behold, you know the words if you're familiar with this passage, I am with you always, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. You see, before Jesus left, he promised that he would give his followers his spirit, which he did a few weeks later. He poured out his spirit into his followers so that he would never truly be gone from them. He calls his spirit the comforter, the one who is with them, who who will never leave. That is one of the greatest joys of being a Christian, is that we, within ourselves, have God's spirit abiding with us, God with us. Emmanuel, and that is the outcome of the incarnation. What does it mean that God is with you? What does it mean to enjoy the witness of God? Well, the first thing it means, before you could enjoy it all, is to believe that Jesus Christ did come to die on the cross for your sins, and he did rise again. That's the the very first step. You can't can't get anywhere unless you believe the very heart of the Christian message and that God has come in the flesh. I want to ask you this and I want you to consider it this this morning. Have you trusted that? Have you trusted in Jesus? Do you believe that? This is the most urgent need that you have. If you have not trusted that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again for you. And if you ask if you have trusted that, then I can say, upon the authority of the, of the Bible, God's Word, God is with you. God is with you. And I want to take just a few moments to help you celebrate what it means that God is with you. If God is with you, His presence gives you comfort. His presence gives you comfort. His withness comforts you. And some of you desperately need that comfort this morning because you're facing something, I may not be aware of it, that is very distressing to you. It could be related to your aging. It could be related to the sickness of your family members. It could be related to your employment or lack thereof. But you, of all things right now, what you simply need is the comfort of God being with you. And Jesus promised his disciples before he left them, he said, I will not leave you childless, I mean parentless. I will not leave you like orphans. I will be with you. And it's actually better, Jesus said, it's better that I go from you because when I go, I will send my spirit and he will be with you to be your comforter in times of sorrow, in times of grief. For many of you, the, the, the Christmas season coincides with with hard memories, and you're going to this Christmas season and you're going to be, you're going, to be going on Christmas Day and, and someone that you were with, Chris, with at Christmas a year ago or five years ago or ten years ago, they're not going to be with you this Christmas. They're gone and you need comfort. And the fact that the incarnation is a real event and has a real, real purpose and a real outcome means you have that comfort because God is with you. Here's a second implication of God's witness, God's being with you. He gives you courage. Some of you are very fearful. You're very afraid of what people think of you. Those of you who are children and and teenagers and and young adults, you may have this just paranoia even of what people are thinking about you. If you're trusting in Jesus, God is with you, and He can give you. The, he gives you courage. You do not need to be afraid. You might know the story of. uh daniel's three friends in the book of daniel shadrach meshach and abednego how that when they were they they were threatened they said you have to bow down and worship this golden statue otherwise you're gonna be thrown into this fiery furnace and they said we're not afraid oh I, i would have been afraid of a fiery furnace yes obviously but what was the true source of their courage it was the fact they knew god was with them and indeed when they were thrown into that furnace the king and his fellow dignitaries looked in, and there was a fourth person in there with him, with him, and the king said, it looks like the Son of God. It was. God gives you courage because he's with you. A third implication of God's withness, of God being with us, is that it teaches us how to care for others by being with them. You see, When when Jesus gave his followers that final commission, we call it the Great Commission, he said, go into all the world. One of the things that meant is that they had to go to be with other people. One of the ways that we care for people, one of the ways that we show our love for people is by being with them. Just like God showed his care and love for us by coming to be with us, so he wants us to show our care and love for others by being with them. The, the power of your presence, of your witness in other people's lives is more than you can probably imagine. I mean, we can't, we're not, we can't be in every place at the same time like God can, obviously. And yet, we can be in the places that are important for us to be in. We can be with the people that we, that we need to comfort or show love and care to. I've had the privilege of doing many funerals. In the past five years here. And I say privilege because although it is a time of sorrow, it is also a time when I get to have a first, a front row seat of family members and friends comforting one another. How? By being with each other. When we have a funeral service or memorial service in this building or in another building or at a cemetery, what I don't see is people with books on scopes for strategy with uh, 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 strategies for coping with grief people aren't reading books they're embracing each other they're with each other and you can give the same gift of witness to others as well by being with them in their grief it highlights the importance of not only being with people who are grieving or lonely but it also highlights the importance of being with your fellow believers by being present with one another by, to show that we love one another. And also highlights the importance of being with those who may not know who Jesus is, to show them the love that Jesus can have for us. The question people most often ask, as I said near the beginning, of an astrophysicist at least, is are we alone? And the story of Christmas says, no we're not. Because God has come in the flesh and He has sent His Spirit to be with us and one day He is coming again. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Would you bow your heads? In a moment, we are going to sing a song as a response, but would you take the the quietness of these moments to just pray and pray with me. Maybe there's comfort you need and you You can have that comfort because of God's presence with you. It could be that you have not trusted in Jesus as your Savior, and you need to do that. I would urge you, do not leave this place without talking with somebody about that. We'd love to be able to pray with you and and show you how to trust in Jesus and answer any questions that you you might have. Do you need comfort and courage this morning? Or perhaps you need to reach out and care for other people and give them the gift of your presence over this holiday season. Our Father, thank you for our Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you that you promised that you will never leave or forsake us, so that we may boldly say the Lord is my helper, I will not fear what man can do to me. I pray that we would find more joy in your presence than anywhere else. I pray that anyone who does not know the comfort of your presence and is not trusting in you, that that person would trust in Jesus. And for anyone who is struggling to trust and struggling to feel and know your presence, that that person would know it and enjoy it. And not only enjoy it for themselves, but but show it to other people as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.